Okay. So, good evening, everybody. Our topic for tonight is the episode of The Boats of Cherbourg, one of the more amusing uh, stunts pulled by uh, the Israeli military in cooperation with its, its secret services uh, in December of 1969. And in order to understand the story, we have to first know a little bit about the Israeli Navy. The Israeli Navy had its origins in the, the Palyam. If there was the Palmach, there was also the Palyam. This is in the, in the pre-state era, the era of the Haganah. So the role of the pre-state Zionist Navy was primarily illegal immigration. Uh, Ali Abet, bringing Jews in to Eretz Yisrael against the wishes of the British and beyond those who were allowed in under the quota. Uh, and those who participated in these uh, seafaring voyages, many of them became the, the nucleus of what would become the Israeli Navy from June of 48 and onward. But the Israeli Navy was never as significant as the Army or the Air Force. It was always the uh, the lesser partner. And at a meeting on Mount Carmel... In 1961, Admiral Yochai Benun gathered together the uh, head honchos of the Israeli Navy and asked them, how can we revive the Navy as a fighting force? Because the defense ministry was undertaking serious consideration of turning the Navy basically into the Coast Guard, that it would just uh, do patrols of the coastline not for militaristic purposes, but just uh, essentially civilian purposes. And this would have killed the Navy as an element of uh, of Tzahal. So the defense ministry was in possession of guided missiles operated by a joystick. The product existed. The army wasn't interested in it, well, because of expenses, The Air Force didn't seem to be interested in it. What if the Navy were to take a missile system and attach it to boats, to to small, high-speed boats that could then engage the enemy in conflict? Uh, There was a problem with the missiles in that the Arab missiles had a, a, a range of 45 kilometers, whereas the Israeli Gabriel missiles only had a range of 20 kilometers. So multiple electronic countermeasures would have to be attached to these boats in order for them to wiggle their way through the danger and be able to engage the enemy. But the effectiveness of these countermeasures would not be known through testing. It could not be tested. It could only be known through real combat in wartime. Okay, it's a little dangerous. But uh, the idea was to invigorate the Israeli Navy with these high-speed missile boats, it will be a top-secret program known as Shalachet, or Fallen Leaves. No Western Navy had such boats in the early 1960s. It was the frontier of naval technology. As Israel would find out, the Soviet Union did develop such boats and gave them to the Arab states, including Egypt and Syria. So it was not going to be that Israel would have an advantage. As it turned out, Israel was just catching up, but would do a better job of deploying them than her Arab neighbors would do. And we'll see that at the end of today's presentation with regard to the Yom Kippur War. Okay, 
So who's going to build these boats? The answer potentially was the Germans. Where's the money going to come from to fund the, the uh, construction of these boats? So as we've recalled several times in this uh, year's series of lectures, Shimon Peres had good relations with Franz Josef Strauss, the defense minister of West Germany, and there was a reparations deal in play for lots of money so that the new Germany, the denazified Germany, would clean up its image and uh, do so by giving Israel the ability to defend itself. So the money was going to come from essentially German reparations. It was not going to come from some existing slush fund in Israel. Uh, And a German company was considering building the boats until the Arab states found out about it. And then the Germans kind of uh, backtracked and says, it better we should take this somewhere else. Okay, so this was the golden age in the mid-60s of French-Israeli cooperation. And a French company will produce, the, will manufacture the boats. Uh, the manufacturer will be in Cherbourg, France. The shipyard was owned by a man by the name of Felix Amiot. And Amiot was a good guy, or at least he had been a good guy during World War II. His company was located in a part of France that was under Nazi control, and he instructed his uh, his subordinates in the company um Work as slowly as you can so as not to benefit the German war effort and employ everyone, including the undesirables, including French Jews. So this guy, Amiat, was, was, uh, if not a chassid olam, like a righteous among the nations, at least he was, a, he was a good guy, decent guy. And it's not surprising that when Israel needs a French manufacturer, he steps up and is willing to play the role and is willing to go through with some of the shenanigans to get the boats to Israel once the French government sours on the whole arrangement. Okay, well, the order was for 12 Saar-class boats. And the first boats launched in April of 1967. April of 1967. Five boats made their way to Israel between April of, between the middle of 67 and late 1968. Five boats made it to Israel out of the 12. But Franco-Israeli relations were taking a turn for the worse after the Six-Day War. If you recall, you know, during the, the Hamtana, the waiting period, which lasted from May 15, 1967, through June 4th, 1967, up until the outbreak of war on June 5, so that the three-week waiting period, Israel was looking for allies around the world that would defend her interests because Gamal Abdul Nasser, the president of Egypt, had ordered the blockading of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, the Straits of Tehran, which was an act of war, Cassis Belli. And Abba Ibn, the foreign minister, was sent to France to speak to Charles de Gaulle who said, do not make war. By contrast, when he spoke to Lyndon B. Johnson in Washington, Johnson famously said, Israel will not be alone unless it decides to go alone, which was sort of a yellow light, if not a green light, to say, it's okay, you want to make war, make war, just you better win. Whereas de Gaulle's approach was, don't fight, because de Gaulle was turning pro-Arab and anti-Israel. Okay, well, considering... uh, 
that relations between Israel and France are worsening, Israel had reason to be concerned that it should eventually obtain the other seven boats in the order of 12 boats that it had paid for. The state of Israel paid for these boats. They're under construction in Cherbourg. There are Israeli uh, naval officers supervising the construction in addition to the manufacturer. Uh, but you got to get the boats out of, out of Cherbourg and get them to Israel eventually when they're ready to be launched. So Israel's Navy, more than ever before, needed these boats. Israel suffered several very bad setbacks um, in late 1967, early 1968. The first of them was the sinking of the INS Eilat. Maybe some of you remember this episode. The Eilat was the first ever ship sunk by a surface-to-surface missile fired from another boat. This was the first in in, in modern naval uh, history of a surface-to-surface missile, what boat to another boat, sinking it. It happened on October 21st, 1967. So we're talking now four and a half months after the Six-Day War. This is the early phases of the War of Attrition. The War of Attrition between Israel and Egypt would last for three years, from basically July 1st, 1967, up until middle of 1970. The United Nations tried to mediate this uh, conflict time and time again and kept failing uh, with Gunnar Yaring. Uh, the Americans tried to, uh, with, with the Rostow brothers, tried to negotiate this this conflict. The War of Attrition was a really bloody and bitter ongoing battle at the canal and above and around the canal between Israel and Egypt. So the Eilat was patrolling just outside of Egypt's territorial waters, 12 miles off the coast of Port Said in the Mediterranean. And all of a sudden, the captain realizes there there are missiles coming our way. And he had about a minute to, to react, was unable to move the boat quickly enough, and 47 Israeli sailors died, and over 100 were injured. Um... This episode taught Israel a valuable lesson, although one that they really knew several years earlier. And that is, Israel was a small country without the capacity to absorb a lot of casualties in one moment. You know, it's one thing if you lose a handful of soldiers in a tragic episode, but it's another thing to lose 50 or 100 or 150. These destroyers had you know, sometimes 200 sailors on them. If one is sunk, you lose so many people at one time for a small country like Israel, it's an intolerable blow. And therefore, the Israeli Navy had to be um, uh, supplied with smaller ships, with smaller crew, so that in, even in case disaster strikes, it's not the loss of such a significant uh, number of men. Okay. Well, the Israeli Navy only had three destroyers anyway, and they were all relics of World War II, purchased from you know the Allied powers when they were scrapping their ships uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. Okay. Well, the other tragedy, of course, was the, the, the disappearance of the Dakar, on January 25th, 1968, the Israeli submarine and the loss of 60-some-odd uh, sailors. A trem- again, a tremendous loss of life. No one knew what happened to the Dakar 
and for 31 years it was not found. It was finally found about 9,000 feet below the surface uh, in 1999, 31 years after its disappearance. Uh, whenever I go to, to Har Herzl, I always go to the uh, to the the wall they have uh, for the, the special tragedies that the IDF has, has experienced, and there's a you know the, the spot for the Dakar. So the loss of the Eilat, the loss of the Dakar, the fact that their the Israel's vessels were old and outdated, and that the war of attrition was threatening to blow up into a full conventional war. For all these reasons, getting the last seven boats out of Cherbourg was more and more necessary now than ever before, even if it's necessary to use an element of deception. But why would deception be necessary if the French put an embargo on military supplies to the state of Israel? Why would the French do that? The answer is, sometimes you don't need an answer. But actually, in this case, there is an answer. Uh, Israel bombed Beirut Airport. Why did Israel bomb Beirut Airport? Okay, everything is uh, an eye for an eye. On December 26th, 1968, LL Flight 253 from Tel Aviv to JFK in New York had a stopover in Athens. Word to the wise, never go a stopover in Athens. That's where all the terrorism happens, okay? All the bad things back in the late 70, late 60s, early 70s, mid-70s, whenever some of the bad actors wanted to hijack a plane, Athens, 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 and to a lesser extent, Rome, okay? So go to Paris or London. That was, that was the better option. And Baruch Hashem nowadays, nonstop flights. All right, well... There was a, a stopover in Athens, and the Boeing 707 LL plane was on the tarmac, when all of a sudden two Palestinian terrorists from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PLFP, which was a, a splinter organization, uh, member organization of the PLO, starts firing on the, on, the, on the plane. There was one fatality, sadly, and two injuries. Israel decided to punch back. But in punching back, it's not entirely clear that they hit the right target. They hit a target, not necessarily the right target. Uh, Israel decided to send the IAF, the Israel Air Force, into action, uh, and for that matter, the Israeli Navy too, to shell Leb uh, Beirut International Airport. No people were hurt. Again, no people were hurt in Israel's shelling of a Beirut airport. Why? They targeted planes that were empty, that were sitting on the runway or in the hangar. And 13 planes were destroyed. So why attack Beirut Airport if the PFLP uh, is attacking an LL plane in Athens? So the assumption is that a substantial percentage of the PLO is housed in Lebanon, maybe even in Beirut. Is that really true? It was true at a later time. Was it true in 19, December of 68? Eh. I don't know. I'm not so sure. This may not have been uh, the perfect target for retaliation, but it was the, the ch target chosen. Why would the French be all up in arms about an attack on Beirut? The answer is because the Le Lebanon is an ally of France. Leban uh, at least the, the, the Maronite Christians uh, are sort of the proxies of the French in the Middle East. So an attack on Beirut 
in the, in the eyes of the French, is a, an Israeli crime. Israeli crime. So, how does France react? On January 1st, 1969, at a New Year's party in Paris, where the president, de Gaulle, is greeting on a reception line all of the ambassadors, uh, you know, the, uh, the high-ranking figures of the diplomatic corps, and Walter Eitan is there, uh, representing Israel. So de Gaulle makes the following announcement that uh, you know it, it's an unacceptable attack of one nation on another. And he didn't even mention Israel or Lebanon by name, but it was apparent what he was referring to. He condemned Israel for its attack and imposed a, uh, an embargo of military product on Israel. He halted a shipment of 50 um 50 Mirage fighters that were supposed to go to Israel. And he did not yet announce whether or not the uh, the boats at Cherbourg would also be interdicted. But in fact, yes, the embargo would be imposed upon them too. Israel was aware that this could happen and needed to act fast, as fast as possible. Boats six and seven were already in the water. They had launched. Boat 6 had done its trial runs, but it was not yet authorized to leave. And Boat 7 had not done any testing whatsoever. It was just in the water. Boats 8 through 12 were not yet in the water. We're still under construction in the the dry dock. Okay. Now, fearing the imposition of an embargo, Boat 6 left for Israel immediately without alerting the French authorities. And the French government was not very happy about that. There was nothing they could do. Israel didn't steal it. It, it was property of the state of Israel. But there was some, you know, bureaucratic, uh, uh, you know, inappropriate behavior. They didn't get an authorization to go. And as for boat number seven, the captain of boat number seven was having Friday night dinner uh, in his apartment that he had in Cherbourg when he got a cable saying, you know, uh, uh, you're, you're late for Kiddush or something like that. It was some... Shabbos-related cable, the, the, the code was get get yourself on the boat and get the boat out of there now. So on Friday night, a week after the, the New Year's uh, announcement by de Gaulle, boat number seven snuck out of the harbor and went on its way to Israel. Okay. Well, there was some optimism that when de Gaulle resigned in June, uh, June 20th of 1969, that his successor, George Pompidou, would um, would end the embargo and allow the Cherbourg boats to come to Israel. But that optimistic thinking turned out to be incorrect. The, the embargo was maintained because the French were concerned with Arab public opinion and didn't want to alienate the Arab states. Okay. But what the French did do was allow the boats to be built. They weren't allowed to leave or go to Israel, but they could, they could be built. And Israel had already paid for them, but they would not be released. The final boat went into the water mid-December of 1969. And as I said, because of the sinking of the Eilat and the loss of the Dakar and the the aging fleet that Israel had, it needed these boats. And even by shenanigans and, 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 and dubious methods, they had to get those boats to Israel. So Mordechai Moka Limon. Mordechai Limon, who was a former naval officer, 
was then serving as the head of the defense mission of Israel in Paris. And he became the mastermind of a brilliant scheme to, to somehow, some way, get these boats out of Cherbourg, France, and to, to Haifa Harbor in Israel. He wanted the getaway to occur on Christmas Eve, era of Christmas. Why? Because the French will be busy with their holiday, the security will be non-existent, Everyone will be distracted. And in, in the, the, the dark of night, while everyone else is in church or drunk, the boats will be uh, snuck out. Now, Golda Meir, who was the prime minister at this point, having taken over for Levi Eshkol, uh, Golda did not want to take the boats illegally. She did not want any illegal action by the state of Israel. Everything had to be above board. But Mordechai Limon explained to her that the uh, the gap between legal and not legal can be as wide as a lawyer's comma, which might be just enough to push a squadron of missile boats right through it. In other words, the, the international border between legal and illegal, sometimes you can drive a boat through it if you have to. So the plan to steal the boats, and I quote, steal is in quotation marks because it's not really stealing. The plan was named Operation Noah. Not Noah with an H at the end like Noah, but Noah like N-O-A or Nun Vav Ein Hey. It was named after Captain Benjamin Tellem's daughter. Tellem was involved in this episode and getting the boats out. His daughter's name was Noah. So the scheme to get the boats out would involve selling the boats to a front company that was registered with another nation other than Israel. So that if the if the French authorities believed Israel had washed its hands of these boats, had taken compensation for their investment gone bad, and the boats now were the rightful property of some uh, company that is uh, registered in a third nation, then finally get the boats out of there, let them have it. But you need to find a front company and a will a cooperative nation. So they came up with Starboat. That's the front company's name, Starboat. And it was supposedly, this is the fictional version, uh, a Norwegian oil drilling company. So why a Norwegian oil drilling company? First of all, Norway is not that far away from Cherbourg. I mean, you go up and you go go to Norway. So uh, not too far away. And they received help from Martin Siem. Martin Siem was a Norwegian businessman and a former resistance member. So because he had been a member of the resistance fighting the Nazis and the Nazi takeover of Norway, you know, he's a friend of the Jews, basically. Anyone who is a, 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 an enemy of the Nazis is a friend of the Jews. The connection to Martin Siem was made through Mila Brenner, another former naval officer of Israel, through his uh, company, which was Maritime Fruit Carriers Company. So it, it, it shipped agricultural products. That's how the shidduch was made. And in order to give the impression that this was a real sale and not totally a fictional, a fictitious thing, there were tough negotiations. I say tough negotiations between Israel and Starboat to give the appearance that this is a real transaction. Ultimately, the deal was approved by the French defense minister, Michel Debra. The French military approved this deal thinking that Starboat 
was actually a front company for the Norwegian Navy, which would be fine because both France and Norway were members of NATO. So, hey, if it's a fellow NATO ally and they have to, for whatever reason, use a front company to get boats from us, that they're slipping away from the Israelis, so be it. Who are we to get involved and stop them? Let them have the boats. Nobody bothered to ask how the cover story made any sense, because it really didn't. Why would an oil drilling company need this particular type of boat, which had been designed carefully and very specifically uh, as a missile boat for for uh, you know for war making, not for oil drilling? Some French officials figured out the truth. They realized this is all a bluff, and the Jews are trying to get their boats to Israel, and they're, they're, they're concocting some kind of harebrained scheme to fool us, and, and those officials were not fooled. However, they turned the blind eye, even knowing what they knew, because they opposed the embargo. Remember, a substantial percentage of the French government or the French bureaucracy was pro-Israel, was, active, was actively you know, Christian Zionist or socialist Zionist. Uh, and so those people were not happy that the government imposed the embargo and that Pompidou was keeping up the embargo. So even though they knew what was really going on, they didn't say boo, they allowed it to happen. Um, Alexander Sanguinetti was a very high-ranking French parliamentarian on the Defense Committee, and he suggested Israel just take the boats, you know, walk on in and take them. So here, a, a, a high-ranking figure of the French government says, let them just have the boats. Let them, they, they, Israel should just take the boats. What are they? What's stopping them? We're not stopping them. There's no security here. No, no one with guns is going to shoot them. Um, so uh, there's a question, wasn't France out of NATO? So the answer is France had its own nuclear posture, uh, but was still part of the alliance. They, they, they departed from American uh, domination on the nuclear umbrella issue. They, they, made, they had their own weapons, and, um, but they were still part of the alliance. So the uh, clearly the, the French were not of one mind about this embargo. Other French leaders thought it was an embarrassment that the boats were being held up. And let's just be done with it already. Not even taking a pro-Israel position or an anti-Israel position so much as it's a pro-French position. Like this is just causing us uh, headaches and service. Let's get them out of here. Moreover, the um, the Cherbourg Harbor was being cluttered with these five boats that weren't going anywhere. So let's get these things out of here. Okay, fine. Dayan, Moshe Dayan, as a defense minister, approved the scheme. While Golda was the final holdout. But eventually, she also approved. Because the, t- the clock was ticking and they wanted to have the December 24th getaway. December 22nd, new contracts were signed. Israel released the shipbuilder, Amiot, from his obligations. Amiot sold the boats to Starboat, the supposedly Norwegian company, and the deal called for Starboat to pay Israel directly that money doesn't have to change hands twice through Amiot. Then Starboat leased the boats to Netive Neft, an Israeli oil exploration company, for three years, 
with the right to purchase the boats after the three years have elapsed. This was the deal that the French government approved. However, the very next day, December 23rd, another round of paperwork was secretly uh, signed and undid all of the previous day's contracts. So in the end, the boats really did belong to Israel, not to some Norwegian company. The second round of paperwork was also submitted to the French authorities, but it was deliberately submitted by mail to the wrong government address so that nobody would know the truth until the getaway had already happened. So, you know, here the you're bamboozling the authorities and sending them the real paperwork only just a few days too late when it's already a fait accompli. Now, the question at the practical level, forget the contracts and, uh, uh, and paperwork, at the practical level at Cherbourg, how do you confuse the French and not get caught? So one thing is, if you want to go out at night on the night of the getaway, it has to be the case that there are periodic excursions at odd hours so that another excursion at an odd hour would not rouse suspicion. So therefore, short regular voyages were undertaken every day in the preceding few weeks so as to justify random hour departures and to justify the uh, high level of fuel in the boats. Now, the boats are going to need a lot of fuel and refueling to get from Sherbrooke to Haifa. But you can tell if the boat has a lot of fuel on it because then the water line on the outside of the ship is much higher since it's the, the the oil is weighing the ship down, how do you justify the the, the, the heavily laden ship? Um, uh, Les is asking, were the boats completely constructed? Yes, they were all done. They were all finished. They hadn't done un, undergone all the testing, but that's fine. The te- the testing would happen in Israel. They were they were completely constructed. So having the ships weighed down with a lot of fuel for a week's long voyage was a reason to be suspicious. So therefore, take them out on regular voyages. That's what, that explains why they have so much uh, gas in them. Also, who's manning the ships? There's a skeleton crew that had always been there, including a, a skeleton Israeli crew. But then you need about 16 to 20 men per ship to operate it appropriately. So between 80 and 100 Israeli sailors arrived at Cherbourg over the span of a few weeks. They arrived in small groups, not a bunch of them coming at one time. Uh, And they tried to be as inconspicuous as possible, and they hid below deck that nobody should find them. The fuel and the food, remember food, you got to feed people, 20 people on a boat for a week's long journey. It's a lot of fruit and vegetables. So the fuel and food for the week-long journey were bought in small quantities so as not to cause any suspicion. And the engines were operated at night, which would be necessary for the nighttime getaway. But in order to uh, prevent people from thinking that that was peculiar, they, in the previous a few days, operated the engines at night, and they got a local, local permit from the Sherbrooke authorities to do so on the grounds that it's winter and it's cold and the onboard generators do not produce enough electricity to heat the boat. Therefore, it's necessary to fire the engines. And that's how the boat was heated. Okay. 
So all the different like reasons of too much fuel, how do you buy the food, there's too much noise, where do you get the sailors from, all these factors which could have blown the cover and destroyed the operation, there were, there were answers for every one of them. Okay. Now, that said, even though there were answers for all these contingencies, there was a blunder. A blunder at the Paris airport. One of the small groups of sailors that was coming to Cherbourg uh, and went through the Paris airport, they got stopped at passport control. And the uh, the guy behind the counter said to four or five guys who were coming from Israel, uh, what, what brings you to France? And they said, we're students. Bear in mind that Israel decided... All of the sailors were going were gonna to travel on legitimate Israeli passports. They were not going to manufacture fake Australian passports or whatever it is, or, you know, some other random country, uh, New Zealand passports. They were going to be on real Israeli passports. Just This way, just in case somebody got caught, they could not be further arrested and prosecuted for passport fraud. Better they should just come up clean uh, and try to get onto the boats. So the guy at passport control said, you know, what, what brings you here? They said, we're students. And his response was in Hebrew, uh, you know, don't lie to me. You guys must be military. How did he know? The answer is, he told them, you have consecutively numbered passports. You all have short haircuts and you're all wearing the same blazer. So it must be that you work for the government or the military, that you're not coming as random Chamyankel students. Now, that's a blunder that the Navy committed. Had the Mossad been handling this operation themselves, they wouldn't have made that kind of blunder. The consecutive passports and guys who look like they're uh, up to no good. Okay. Well, the, the, guy, the guy behind the, the desk at passport control uh, could have stopped them, but he said, no, you're free to go. You've committed no crimes. So they went. That's it. Now, the escape route, would go through the English Channel, the Bay of Biscay, Straits of Gibraltar, and the Mediterranean Sea, 5,600 kilometers. That's a long distance, a very long distance. The five boats would have to leave during a storm because on December 24th, late in the day, it was bad out there. It was a force nine storm with strong gale force winds. The Israelis were watching the BBC weather reports uh, hoping for a break in the storm during which they could go out to sea. The departure was delayed from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Amiot, the uh, the shipbuilder, the Frenchman, and a friend of the Jews, he went to midnight mass to Daven for the success of Israel's getaway, meaning he's in on the whole thing, he knows it, and he goes to the church to Davin, to his wherever you know that 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 uh, the navy of Am Israel should get 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 have their getaway. Well, God listened to his prayers because the weather broke, and at two thirty the ships were able to get out into the open sea. Uh, as a matter of honor, of personal honor, Amiot wanted Israel to get its ships because they were paid for, and contractually, you know, he wanted to keep his word. So he was happy that it all worked out well. Uh, there's a need to refuel twice during the, the long journey. Once off the coast of Gibraltar and the other uh, off of Malta. Who's going to help them refuel? The Tsim ships, 
Zim ships, okay, the Israeli shipping line was positioned, had big ships positioned with extra fuel tanks at the right locations to get the job done. Okay. Well, once the boats were gone and the locals contacted the authorities, hey, where are the boats? So the journalists got in on this. They wanted to know where the boats. Now, at first, the journalists went looking by helicopter over the North Sea, thinking that the boats were purchased by a, by a Norwegian company, and if they're, they're traveling to Norway. But you know what? There was nothing in the North Sea. And the Norwegian government confirmed that Starboat was a fake company. So now it's all coming apart. And the French are made to look like laughingstocks. They're embarrassing themselves. You know, the, 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 the company was a fake company, and now, now we know. Okay? Well... As the boats are getting through Gibraltar, uh, the British, who control the Straits and control Gibraltar, ask for the ships to identify themselves. And the Israelis don't respond. So, given that the news had already broken, the ships of Cherbourg had had departed uh, surreptitiously under cover of darkness, the British basically were aware that, um, you know, this is probably the Israelis. Five boats, five boats, it's got to be. So 15 minutes after hailing them and saying, you know, who are you? Identify yourselves. The British tipped their caps uh, by Morse code and say, bon voyage. Why did it, why was it 15 minutes later? It took them 15 minutes to get a, a bottle of champagne to toast the Israelis for screwing over the French. That was basically, the, the, the British were, were enjoying the fact that the French got, got, got snookered. Okay. Now, the French government found out what happened on the BBC, of all places. Like, the the locals knew right away, but the the French government in Paris really didn't know until the news broke uh, on BBC. And the reporters found the boats sailing very, very quickly eastward in the Mediterranean. So now we get to the ugliest part of this whole story. The French defense minister, Michel Debra, uh, who had the most to be embarrassed about because he approved the deal that allowed this to go forward, he suggested bombing the ships. Can you imagine that? The French defense minister suggests bombing five Israeli ships floating in the Mediterranean, ships owned by Israel, purchased by Israel, in peacetime, there's no war between France and Israel. They have diplomatic relations. Okay, they're, they're partners in, in this uh, construction venture. And the defense minister says, let's bomb them and kill people. Fortunately, he was overruled by Pompidou and, and, and the rest of the cabinet said the guy was nuts. Okay. Well, after the boats passed through Crete, Israeli phantom jets provided an escort flying low for the home stretch. The boats arrived in Haifa on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1969. But uh, a decision was made not to bring them to the shore, but rather to stay out a kilometer or so on the sea until it was really dark at, really dark out, because the goal was to avoid extra media coverage 
which would unnecessarily annoy the French. So remember, Israel's goal was not to stick it to the French. Uh, Israel was not angry at, the, at France. Yeah, it was annoyed by the boycott, by the embargo, but the goal was just to get the boats. And to the extent that you can mitigate the damage by not having too much media coverage, so be it. But as it turned out, there was plenty of media coverage anyway. And if you go to Google, Google Images, and you type in Boats of Cherbourg, one of the first images that comes up, you'll see is the port of Haifa, and and like a police barricade, it says police mishtara, and like those, uh, the, the, not the, the the wooden horses, but like the metal gates. And you'll see that there was media attention, police attention as the boats came in. Okay. What was the fallout from all of this? So Mordechai Limon, the guy who was the head of the defense mission in Paris and who had masterminded the whole thing, he was recalled. Basically, the French kicked him out. Israel brought him back. But he was not declared persona non grata by France. Had he been so declared, he would never have been allowed to step foot in French soil again for fear of arrest. But that did not happen. As it turned out, he had a reason to go back to France about two years later on business. And he gets to passport control in the airport. And the guy looks at him and says, you're Admiral Limon, right? And he he waits, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Limon thinks, oh, no, they're going to arrest me. I got service now. And the guy says, congratulations, you're free to go. <laughs> like, uh, it was just a, like a, a funny little incident. He scared him, but uh, you're free to go. Now, the French reaction was was pretty minimal to all of this. It was enough to placate the Arabs. Remember, the whole point of the embargo was that France should maintain decent relations with the Arab world. Remember, France had gone to war with Egypt in 1956. France had fought a bitter war with Algeria for years. Uh, France was allies of some sort with uh, Lebanese, had complicated relations with Syria. Okay, France is a player in the Middle East, sometimes adversarial, sometimes not, but they wanted to maintain good relations. So they made enough of a stink to make the Arabs happy, but not too much of one because uh, they didn't want to further expose their own incompetence. You know, that's uh, also a priority. Moreover, 75% of the French populace was okay with what Israel did. Uh, France was not so heavily anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist in its in its uh, uh, opinion polls at that time. I mean, yes, it had a, a, a rightist anti-Semitic element, sure, but the, the public was okay. Basically, didn't 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 want the government to bust Israel's chops over what happened. Okay, now the operation proved to the world that in Israel's national defense, she was willing to do anything even dubious and underhanded things. That uh, if she, if Israel could get away with it, it's going to do so if it improves its defense posture. So all this talk for the last you know, 45 minutes was about how the boats were going to improve Israel's military standing. Did it actually work out that way? And the answer is yes. Let's now jump to the Yom Kippur War. So the Yom Kippur War, which begins on October 6th, 1973, and uh, begins with a land invasion uh, of, well, an amphibious uh, landing of of the the dinghies 
across the, the Suez Canal onto the Sinai Peninsula and in the north from the Syrian side of the demarcation line onto the Israeli Golan Heights. So the bulk of the fighting is going to be on land and in the canal, but there was a sea battle. So on the first night of the Yom Kippur War, a battle took place off the coast of Latakia between the Israeli and Syrian navies. It was the Syrian Soviet-made Styx missile versus Israel's Gabriel missile on the Saar boats, the boats of Sherbourg. The Styx, as I mentioned, had a range of 45 kilometers, while the Gabriel had a, uh, had a range of only 20 kilometers. And yet Israel won the battle. Israel won the battle handily. In the Yom Kippur War, no Israeli ship was sunk. Eight Arab ships went to the bottom, including six missile boats that went to the bottom of the sea. So as such, the sea lanes remained open to civilian shipping to Haifa Harbor. And during the war, 100 freighters carrying essential supplies were able to deliver their vital cargo during the war to Israel. Now, some of that was just uh, civilian materials because, you know, you got to supply the country with its needs. But also some of the stuff that got through was military hardware, courtesy of the United States. I, well, if the sea lanes were, 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 were blocked because the Israeli Navy had failed, the war could have turned out uh, very differently. Okay, so that's the, the story of the boats of Cherbourg. It's a, it's a humorous story. It all ends well. Um, and it, it tells you that relations between Israel and France were rocky, have their ups and their downs, that France in its better days was a great supplier to Israel of military goods, some of which was paid for, some not so much paid for, uh, whether it's the nuclear reactor in the late 50s, courtesy of the collaboration in the 1956 war, or it's the sale of Mirage fighters, or it's these boats, the Sarklas boats. France was a significant player in Israel's uh, armaments. But certainly it, th- that came to an end. And this episode was the nail in the coffin. Israel would have to rely upon the United States to be its major supplier in the, in the years and decades to follow. And the United States, under Johnson, then Nixon, and, and others, would uh, fill that void. Okay, I'll take some questions. Okay, if you have a question, go right ahead. Yes, no, maybe. Hi, I have a question. Um, Hello, Tina. From what I remember, uh, Algeria was a a French colony, and 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 then they kicked. Uh, the Fr- French out. They didn't want. They wanted to be independent. Correct. Independent. Yeah, yeah. Gaulle didn't like that very much because he was losing his empire, part of his empire. But the Gaulle, uh, earlier than some of the other French nationalists, threw in the towel and recognized it was time to give up. Okay, so one of his motivations of not having, you know, of, of playing to the Arabs was 
that he recognized that it was a, a lost battle to try and keep this empire going? In other words, why did he, you mentioned that he wanted to placate Algeria. Why? I mean, well. So remember that, that Israel is one country, a small country, and the Arabs have oil and are 20 some odd countries. Uh, in general, it, it's easier to be pro-Arab. It's only It only pays to be pro-Israel if you're going to get something from your relationship with Israel, which some countries did get. You know, Israel has allies around the world, not necessarily for Zionistic ideological reasons, but because they had common interests. You know, Israel supplied intelligence to this or that country, or Israel supplied agricultural know-how to this or that country, or Israel supplied security forces for, you know, a prime minister or a king not to get assassinated. Israel has quirky relations with, the, with some random countries that are good. But for the most part, Israel of the, of the 50s and then into the 60s and early 70s had bad relations with countries because it was easier to be pro-Arab. Because they have the oil. But yeah, and they're much larger and more significant globally. But did that turn because of the high tech? That's a more recent phenomenon. Yeah, I'm sure in some places it did. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. just thinking about it in context of anti-Semitism today and everything that's going on, that, you know, in, in a heartbeat, the EU changes their stance toward Israel, in a, less than a heartbeat. Well, we got we got to watch our backs. All right. Any other questions? Questions? Anybody else? No, we're good. All right. On that note, folks, see you in two weeks. Our next topic will be double agents. Those who spied for Egypt and for Israel, or we're not sure who they spied for, to be continued. Take care.